This is episode 116 of the Secret Library Podcast. My guest this week is Amy Alcon. Amy Alcon works in applied behavioral science, translating scientific research into highly practical advice. Alcon writes the award-winning science help column, The Science Advice Goddess, syndicated to newspapers across the U.S. and Canada. Amy's latest science help book is Unfuckology, a field guide to living with guts and confidence. I was really excited to see Amy speak on a panel that was moderated by another guest from the Secret Library podcast, Natasha Dion. And what struck me about her research was that she might be able to speak to the question that many listeners have asked and comes up with my coaching clients all the time, which is this fear and kind of paralysis that comes up around saying, I am a writer about what you do when you're writing. And that it's very difficult to own this title. And there are lots of resistance and blockages and all kinds of tricky things that come up when saying I am a writer. So I definitely knew that I wanted to have her on to talk about ways to use the research she's done on confidence and how confidence works in order to help us all really own the identity of being a writer. And the conversation that followed went even further, so much further into fun areas about science, confidence, and ways that she hijacks her writing routine to make her most productive as well as other hilarity. So it was really a treat to talk with Amy and I know you're really going to enjoy hearing her. So here we go with Amy Alcon. Hey Amy, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you because there is one issue that comes up over and over and over again as I talk to people who are hoping to write, um, but they are I, I would say the degree goes between anxious to actively terrified to refer to themselves as writers. And as I was reading your book, I really thought that there was a lot to consider in terms of how you can psych yourself up and not feel so fearful about identifying as a writer, putting a story down, putting your story out in public. There's a lot about that that requires you to be a little more comfortable with yourself and comfortable putting yourself out there that your book really dives into. So I'm wondering if you could say something a little bit about how people could maybe start to baby step it into saying, okay, I might be okay with one day calling myself a writer. Well, you're a writer if you write. You know, Van Gogh wasn't not a painter because he didn't get paid for his paintings during his lifetime. So that's the thing. See, a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about writing, talking about writing, saying they're going to write. And the thing is that um, I have actually a technique that I use, which is um, basically I don't let my feelings be the boss of me. And the way I do that, because your feelings say, don't write, clean out the refrigerator. You're a loser. You have nothing to say. Look at that white page. How are you going to fill that with anything of value? I mean, I've written, I'm now in my fifth book. I mean, it still so says great. that to me. It still says that to me. And so the way you deal with that, first of all, is to take your feelings out of the equation. So I have a timer. Um, I do 52-minute jags and then 17 minutes break. And I turn that on. And now I could write, I'm an idiot and I have nothing to say 400 times. But that seems like really a waste of time. It's also boring. And what happens is... As you get writing, so you write some sift down, it's dumb or whatever, and then you look something up and then look at a book and it has, you know, an idea. I write, I write applied behavioral science. So 
I will be looking at some study or something. And then you start to get some ideas. And what happens is, ideally, you lose yourself in the work. This is called getting into a flow state. This is from this guy, Mihai, Mihai. I can't believe I can say that, but he wrote this book called Flow that talks about this. And in order to get into flow, you have to do the work. You have to start the work. And the great thing, too, is that once you start the work, so I make a big mess on the page for an hour, and sometimes I'll go on, because I write an advice column, a syndicated, science-based, also funny advice column, so I'll start a question one day and read the research and come up with some funny stuff, and it's just a mess on the page. And then Thursday morning, so that's Wednesday, Thursday morning, I wake up and I know what to do. And the reason for this is that you have what's called default mode brain processing. So when you're in, when you're writing or reading or doing something that takes focused attention, very tight neural networks are at work. And they're focusing you in, pointing into your work and you're coming up with these things. And when you back off from your work and you're washing a dish or making the bed or sleeping, um, default mode brain processing takes over. And this is background processing with these wider neural networks. And this is why sometimes you come up with an answer and you didn't really do anything, you think. But that's why these breaks are important. Breaks where you are not looking at Facebook or Twitter or using those parts of your brain, the smarty pants parts of your brain that you use for writing, that you're just doing something dumb. Go clean the moldings. You know, this is very, very helpful. I loved your story about oh, right. a purposeful walk to go get the right. get twenty dollars from the ATM, and then you so, know what to write. My book on phacology is about embodied cognition, and that sounds very, you know, professors use this language like that, the ivory tower ease. But what it basically means is that the mind is bigger than the brain. And so therapists who have had you sit there and whine about your problems, just talk, 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 talk. This is the least efficient way to solve your problems because it turns out that our body and our minds work together in creating and changing our emotions. And so metaphor is not just a literary device. It actually seems to be the first language of the body. And so when I write, after writing this book and reading all the research I did, I'm very careful to say, for example, instead of... Um, knowing something, grasping something. Can can you grasp this? Because that is a language that we instantly get in a way we don't get knowing. You know, it's seeing is another thing. Like we see, see is the eyes. This is what we do. You know, our bodies do. So it's really important to employ the body in um, trying to fix your problems in whatever way you can. And what you were talking about with the bank thing, so when I, when I have a problem with, when my writing is just a muddle and I've been working on it and I need to take a break, um, I will walk to the ATM. I, I pretend that I'm doing something. I take out $20, um, just so I'm doing something. It seems like I'm doing an important task. Um, and then I walk home. And when you're walking, I mean, this sounds crazy, but you're actually, you're going towards something. You know, you're, you're going off into the distance. You're, you're, you're making headway. You're doing these things that, that actually we, we talk about, but they're actually, they're physical manifestations of them. And often by walking, Nietzsche found this, many writers have found this, that you come up with solutions. And it's this thing of the default mode brain processing take out, taking over, but also that you're doing this purposeful movement. It feels like you're going forward. It's really important. So these are all things 
that actually make a real difference. I just, I forgot something I was saying about the, your, your feelings not being the boss of you and writing to a timer. I mean, it really is basically you take your feelings out of the equation. You're like a robot. I don't let myself, you know, stop in the middle of that. Like if there was some emergency phone call and I let no one call me, no one's ever allowed to make my phone ring, but say that my boyfriend were having <laughs> some kind of like, um, seizure and he had to call me because he couldn't call 911. I, that makes me sound really heartless. I'm kidding, of course. But, um, then I would pause my timer and then take up right afterward. But I really, I, I train people to never call me. I have a do not ever call rule for all of my friends. If you want to talk to me on the phone, you know, email me and we can talk. We can plan a time to talk or we can go out for a drink and be face to face. My phone is, in my purse, my, I barely use my cell phone. I actually have a landline for doing radio. My cell phone is always on airplanes. So people learn because they'll text me like about something really important on Thursday and like the next Wednesday, I'll turn on my phone and be, oh, oh, and then I remind them. Yeah. So you have to train your friends. You have to reserve your writing time as this very important time, especially before you are um, a quote unquote pro writer, before you're paid for it, because people will tend not to respect your writing time, but you need to respect it by letting, by letting them know this is my time. This is very important. You need to take off to a room away from everybody else. They won't bother you if you live in a house with other people and just take that chunk of time and do your work. Because otherwise, you're never going to have the focus you need to do it well. Absolutely. I think, I think these boundaries are really important. And I think that as you start to figure out that writing is something that's essential to do for you, then you have to start putting these in place. So I think that it's like, I love the idea of being a robot and just being deciding that I will now be a writing robot. And you can put emotion on the page with what you write because what you write is very funny as well as informative. Thank so you. there's feelings in there, but maybe the feelings go in the page, not about putting something on the page. Right. That's just sort of wasted. Like, oh, I have feels and they're flying around. And a thing I want to say about that, um, there's something I write about in the book called Chronotypes. And this is what time of day is your ideal time of day when you have, I call it best brain. And so mm. chronotypes, there are, um, what are they called? Um, they're larks. Those are the morning people. They're the midday people who get no cute bird name. And then are, there are the owls. And so those are the people who do best in the evenings. Most people are larks. They do best in the morning. But what do they do? They get on their computer and they go on Facebook and they answer their email. And by the time they, you know, it's time to write, they've used up a lot of that writing energy. So it's really smart to just do that first. Elmore Leonard, the crime writer, used to do this. He would write a page on a yellow pad um, at five in the morning before making a pot of coffee back when he worked at an ad agency. So he was working on novels. He was actually working on um, these short stories for um, these Western magazines back when he worked at Campbell Ewald Advertising. And he'd had to be, he'd have to go there, you know, in the morning, but he would write before work. And the thing is, and a friend of mine, Terry Rossio, actually, who is, who wrote Pirates of the Caribbean and Shrek and everything, he just commented on my Facebook page. I posted something about this iRobot thing. 
um, where you just need to be a robot and do what needs to be done and not let your feelings take over. There have been a number of parties of his, and he has he and, he and his girlfriend threw the greatest parties mm. um, that were we have left. My boyfriend and I have left at nine thirty or sometimes ten if it's really great, you know. And everybody's going to be there till like two in the morning on the water slide and everything. And um, they once this girlfriend said to me, "Oh, do you have a? Are you going on a trip tomorrow?" And I said, "No, I have to be up at five in the morning to write." And the thing is, writing so hard and it can be so ill-paid that unless you feel that way, unless it's something that you can wake up for at five in the morning, and by the way, bacon really helps. I make crispy bacon in the microwave with a, <laughs> this is one of the things I don't cook, I heat. I would eat frozen hot dogs day and night, but for my boyfriend who cooks for me and buys me food, because um, all I care about is writing. Um, but I, the one thing I do make besides coffee is bacon. You get a Pyrex dish, three strips of bacon, put it in the microwave. I put it on eight for like eight minutes, depends on your microwave, but you put a lid on it because people who make bacon in the microwave they make it with like on paper towel and the grease goes away the grease is the point and i'm just saying this this seems unrelated to writing but i have to tell you bacon and i'm sorry if you're a vegan or whatever but no i'm not um oh no i met all those people who you know, well there are very vegans listening of course. moral have moral issues um i'm a bad person um and it, bacon gets me up. It really works to get me up. Bacon and really good coffee. So do those things for yourself as a writer. You know, have an okay chair, have a fan, you know, invest in yourself in ways that matter, you know, to make your writing, to, to make your space work and everything. Those are important things to do. Those are not extravagances. I have to ask you a question sure. because you share... I agree with everything you just said, and I'm oh, really now dying to make some bacon because I'm a big <laughs> fan. We've never discussed bacon on this show before, and I'm, I'm, I'm feeling excited. like we've been missing out. <laughs> yeah. um, so you share all of these very vulnerable personal experiences of being a young person who just felt, I mean, let alone writing, just existing in the first place was a difficult thing with mean people at school and all of these things that happened. How did you get to the point, I know that you, you worked on this as a whole for your life to feel better, but I'm wondering at what point did it start to feel like, okay, not only am I a valuable person, which you've conquered amazingly, but also how, do I, how did you feel like I deserve to write about this too? I just never, deserve is such a weird thing. Just write, you yeah. know, and, and you, what happens is, so you know, you might have to bring me back to this because I ramble and I have ADD and I forget the question. But um, so this is something I discussed with a guy. Um, he wrote this book X and Y um, about sex differences. He's English. His name's um, Tom Whipple. And um, he's so funny. And, and his book's really good and clear writing. And, um, you know, I just thought, here's a guy who respects the reader. And there are a lot of people who could be good writers, but they either don't realize what it takes that you have to sometimes rewrite things this embarrassing amount of times or um, they're just too lazy to be good writers. It's really, it really takes a lot of work. And I think Elmore Leonard, um, the crime writer said, because we were friends, yeah. my boyfriend was this researcher for literary researcher for for 33 years. Um, he felt that a writer has to write a million words to hit their stride. I don't know if that's, if that's true um, for everybody. There are individual differences, but um, Really, I look back at my first book, um, well, not the first, I wrote that with two other women, but um, the second book, the first one I wrote alone, I see rude people, and I think like, oh my God, what, like, I, I just would do it so differently. I learned so much about organization. I'm a writer, so I'm on my fifth book, 
and I'm still figuring things out about organization. My um, my agent had me write sort of a mini proposal, and I for forget what she said to do some kind of like summary or something like that. And I did it completely wrong. And I realized like, oh, she doesn't mean like summarize what's in my chapter. She meant like a summary of the idea and everything. And it's so funny and humbling and, and hilarious that you can be five books in and still be like, oh, shit, I have to, you know, how do you, how do you do this? And I talked to a friend of mine who's a biographer and he said the same thing. He just rewrote a whole book, you know, in, in sort of a different way that he had written, you know, he just spent, you know, a long time doing that because sometimes you just do stuff and it doesn't work. And to be a professional writer is to know when it doesn't work. Sometimes other people have to tell you and admit it. So I hire someone to edit every professional thing I do. You know, my blog posts, I kind of like, I do them at like 10 o'clock with like one eye closed and like, shit, I better go to bed soon. So sometimes they kind of suck a little bit or they're just sort of like, oh, here's an interesting article and I'll summarize it well and you all discuss this amongst yourselves. I don't always do that. So, you know, a lot of them mean something to me, but you know, to have somebody, that's an investment I make in my writing. And before you are um, at a professional level, or maybe you can't afford that, what you can do is trade writing with somebody, but you need to find somebody whose literary judgment you respect. Oh my God, do not have your mother read your work. I mean, it, maybe there are some exceptions. Unless but, your um, mother's an editor. But even then, you know, you have to that find an editor. Limited. Yeah, I'm not PC, so some editors would find what I say horrifying, you know, and so you have to really find somebody who you agree with. And so I do that sometimes. I just read a friend's, three chapters of a friend's book and gave her comments and everything. Um, so that's an important thing. And don't ask people to read your work for free, um, you know, without some sort of trade or something like that where they're, you're reading theirs. That's just rude. That's like a chore. Oh, and here's another thing, too. When you ask people to read something, or even if they offer, there's something called the planning fallacy. This is a cognitive bias. It's, a, it's an error in reasoning that we all make. We all think, number one, that we will read it and that we'll do it much more quickly than we actually do. So don't be mad at them. Like sometimes people will say they'll read your work and they just won't. And then they'll be horrified that they said yes and that they won't. And then they don't want to call you and everything. So I just tell people when I'm asking them to read, look, you know, if you end up not getting to this, I'm not going to be mad or anything. Sometimes that happens, whatever, because that's the reality. You know, don't expect people. It, it can ruin a friendship, really. No, I think that's a really good point because everybody likes the idea of reading something like, wow, I've wanted to read your book. I've been hearing about it. That's really exciting. But then they, you know, all of these other life things come up or it becomes really difficult. Or they just don't feel like it, or maybe you're a bad writer and you don't know it. You well, know, maybe it's not the book for them. Yeah, and but see, we're all bad writers at times. Like if you write something, they're just subjects that just don't work. You know, you can sort of hammer them into working, but there are times that stuff just comes easily, and then stuff that doesn't. And um, you know, sometimes you have to just trash things. You try, and it's not going to work, and you throw it away. I think that's yeah. I think that's really important. You did say something that I was very curious about early on. It was sort of an aside comment in Unfuckology that was, this book nearly killed me. And I said, oh, I'm so glad I am talking to her because I really want to know what happened and how you got through it because it does not read like a book that nearly killed you. Well, thank you because that's the work that I put into it. I mean, it was truly horrible. Um, and this is so funny because I write these books. So what I do is I write applied science. I call it science help. And when professors write a book, they're narrow casters. To be a professor and get a PhD, which I chose not to do, it's not like, oh, I'm too stupid, but you have to pick well, a it subject takes a area. a lot of time. 
Well, you have to pick a, well, also, and then the academic bullshit stuff of like, oh, committees and like, it's just, I don't want my life to be sucked up by that. I want to do science and a certain kind of science. And what I do is I, I go across areas of research. So neuroscience and clinical psychology and evolutionary psychology and social science. I read the studies and I combine them, I translate them, and then I turn them into practical advice that doesn't go beyond what the science says. So my previous book was Good Manners for Nice People Sometimes Say Fuck. I'm like the girl who writes books with profanity in the title. It was an accident. This was a working title. My editor's like, oh, I love it. We have to use it. It's the unfuckology thing. Yeah, I love that. Um, And so with that one, it was so hard because basically I was creating... Um, you know, pulling together all these ideas about why we're rude, how to change things, um, how to go after the rude, um, why it's in our self-interest to be kind, you know, concepts about strangers, all this stuff. So it was generating this whole package of ideas and advice from very disparate science. And then I thought, oh, confidence, you know, I write this advice column. It's, you know, science help for people who have problems with their relationships or friendships or whatever. And so I thought, oh, confidence will be so easy. So we pitched the book to my editor. Now, when you have a book um, at, a pub- at a publishing company, it's usually in your contract that they get to give um, the first right of refusal at your next book. But you can, if, they, if you don't like them or they, you know, they, don't, they don't offer enough money or something, you can say no and send it out to the world. But I love my editor. You know, he makes, um, he, he makes my work better. Oh, in fact, I want to remember to say something about editors and agents, how people like they hide their problems from them. So just remind me that I wrote a little note to myself. Okay. Anyway, so um, we pitched this book. I do a little mini proposal about what it's going to be. And then I start looking at the science and I'm like, oh, holy shit, embodied cognition. This is horrible. Like, it's so complicated. There's this stuff on neural reuse. I read this paper by this guy, Anderson, 70 pages long about how our emotions are founded, it seems, on the approach and avoidance moves um, of um, small organisms like the amoeba, like, oh, look, there's food. Uh, uh Uh-oh, that thing's going to eat me. Back off. You know, you approach the food, you go away from the thing that's scary. And these seem to be the foundation of our emotions, which are actually not, you know, we think of them as sort of interior decoration for our head, if we think of them at all. But emotions are motivational tools. The same way if you put your hand on a hot stove, it's telling you, you know, the pain says, oh, my God, stop that. Pull your hand away sadness tells you you did something that wasn't a really great thing for you and you shouldn't do it again. And the, you know, the, the slowing down of, you know, you, when you're sad, you want to lie on the couch. So that gives you time to think. The expression of sadness tells other people, oh, look, that person's having a bad time. Let's go help them. It, it, it evokes their empathy. So all of this is important. So when I saw all of this and then I started reading all these papers and I realized then it was the next thing was, there's all this neuroscience in here. And I would look up some word that I didn't know at the beginning of a sentence. And then I would, you know, spend, I'd go down a research rabbit hole. And then I would, by the time I got back to the rest of the sentence, I'd forgotten what the paper was about. So I had to read, because um, I'm, I'm what's called an autodidact. So I didn't go to school for any of this. But I, I um, got Michael Gazaniga, who's a neuroscientist, his um, cognitive neuroscience textbook. And I read and highlighted the whole thing. So Amazing. then I understood neuroscience because he's, he's a really great writer. He wrote with two other people, but it's really um, very clear and everything. So I understood all of that. Now I know a lot about the brain. And so it was all of this stuff where I had to 
figure things out. And like there were rabbit holes I went down, um, that stuff that never made it into the book. And then there was some kind of argument that I saw where, uh oh, this isn't working. This, this whole thing could make my book collapse. And how do I, you know, and, and if it, if it did, I would just have to be honest and I'd be out the money and be really horrible and I'd starve to death. And, you know, um, but I actually, I fixed this problem, but, um, that took trying to figure out some of the stuff I would spend a month reading papers and it never made it into the book. So what happened was I had the extended deadline, the extended, extended deadline, the extended deadline, extended, extended, extended deadline. You know, it makes your book late. It's a problem and everything. But what, what I do, um, I have a great agent and she, she's taught me a lot and I've learned a lot. Um, cause I love my editor so much. I'm with St. Martin's press. I don't want to say his name so people won't flood him with weird, like, you know, I don't know, like <laughs> pictures of themselves in panties or something like that. But, um, that's the traditional reaction to finding out about a good editor. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so I, um, let them know right away when there's a problem. So I told my agent, this is becoming a different book. And so she's very wise. And so I listened to her. This is the thing I learned about. You find people in business who you really think are wise and then you trust them, whether these are lawyers and you can ask them questions or question their, what they're saying. Like, really, is that, you know, a thing or I'm not comfortable with that. And they'll, they'll tell you why you're an idiot in very kind language. Hopefully my agent's very kind. So she said, okay, do, um, do a new outline. And then put together these chapters. So I think we sent him three chapters and an outline. And so, and he is, he is so supportive. So I picked this editor because I felt that I could write a really smart book for him. We talked on the phone. I just loved him. And so, and he let me write this book as a much smarter, much more scientific book than I thought it was going to be. That made it harder. So that's why it ended up being so late. But he was very supportive of that. And then um, the thing is, people, they're just, they think things are done too soon. So what happened was, at the end, um, he was, I had, you have like, a, you know, I think it's like two weeks or something to turn in. They give you changes. And because I pay for editing before it ever goes to him, he had only nine changes. He had nine comments. And my editor, I like going with a very senior editor at a publishing company if you can, if that's, you know, if people are bidding on your book, because what happens is they don't freak out about stupid things. They don't change. Um, I mean, I can't say it's always the case, but they, they're not changing things to like have an imprimis on your work. You know, he didn't see things that were really wrong. He just made these suggestions. And so I made those changes. But then I could see, and this is a great thing about social media. So he's this wonderful guy. He loves food and life. He was in Italy. So I was supposed to turn in and buy some. He's like in a square in Rome having a cappuccino. And I'm like, holy shit, I can keep going. So I rewrote a third of the book to make it clearer. So then, and just because I'm telling people the process because people people think that you're some kind of genius. Oh, look, you did a book. You're the author. It is a collaborative process. My agent, when I come up with a book idea, she comes up with tweaks like, oh, this will make it more saleable or what about this or this is boring or whatever, you know, and I love that. I'm very good about criticism um, because it makes me better. I don't take it from just anybody, but from people I respect. And so then, so I turn in the book. My editor thinks all the changes are great. And, um, and it's much better, but he says there's a problem with the organization. And this is this thing again, where it's collaborative. So I'm like, oh shit. And so, but I'm hoping because it's so tightly written with such complicated science, an amateur editor and a not seasoned editor would have me write some dumb thread all the way through the book. And so he's like, oh, let me think on this. And he goes off and has more cappuccino. And, um, this is like people, people are too, um, 
they think that working is like this hammering thing where it's always horrible, but sometimes it is go off and have a cappuccino and think. And he said, okay, you need to have three sections. This section is, here's what happened. This, the middle section is, here's sort of the background stuff. And then the last section is, here's what you do. Well, this was so brilliant. So then he was gone again. And so then I, oh, that was, oh, sorry. I sort of switched, switched things around. That happened. Then he went to Italy and everything. And so what happened was I went through the book. That's why I rewrote a, the, a third of the book because he right. gave me that organization. And I realized something important about how, how, um, readers take, uh, you know, how they process a book. And I thought what he did made this so much more accessible for the reader. I'm going to employ this sort of thing. It wasn't exactly that throughout, but I, I organized things much better after that and then turned in the book. And so, you know, when I think I was a little bit late still, but that, that's the thing where we just let him know when it's coming and everything. And at a certain point, you're going to miss the catalog and it's really bad and everything. So you have to sort of, you know, balance that. There, there are things, it's it's called satisficing. I think this might be in my book. It's doing a good enough job, right. you know, rather than the like the absolute best job. So I wanted to put in all this research on fatigue in my book. And I have some, but in order for me to do that, it would have taken me another six months. It's such complicated stuff to really digest all the research and understand it. And then what I do, because I go to related fields, I'm not just, oh, I'll read this one study. I, and I look at old stuff, old research, um, it really would take me a long time. So I had to just say, okay, this is good enough. You know, I talk about how, you know, do stuff in the morning and everything. There's this um, line attributed to Mark Twain that's not really his about eat your frogs first. Right. Um, frogs, they're just like those little legs are, sorry, vegans. They're really small, so why bother? It's like quail. Right. The, the French give you quail. It's like, oh, my God, why even, you know, why even bother? Okay, the vegans hate me now. Um, so uh, that, that's some of the stuff of the process of writing. That um, And actually, Vicki LeMay, who is a YA editor at St. Martin's, um, I say this because she's on Twitter and tweets stuff publicly about this, but she said this, like, let your editor know when there's a problem because they won't always solve it for you, but they'll say something to help you and you'll be like, okay, no, I see. I'll do this thing instead. This idea of keeping it a secret from them, they already accept you. They bought your book. For them to buy your book, they have to like send it to a committee and everybody's all like, oh, but what if this, what if that? They love you. They love you enough to pay you money so and to publish your book, which is a huge risk for them. So just tell them they expect you to have problems. It's part of the thing. It's part of the game. Yeah, so then they will be able to tell you the equivalent of go to the ATM and get $20. So yeah, you can right. do something and feel like you're moving forward towards a solution. Right. They've been there. They've Every author is always late with a book. When we when I wrote my first book with these two other women, um, I called my agent and I cried because, um, you know, we had signed a contract and we were supposed to turn it in on this day. And I think it was going to be two weeks late. And he just laughed and laughed on the phone because he said, you know, now I know people, this guy, I know this guy who turned in this book 17 years late now they would make you get back years? the advance yeah they would make you get back the advance and then um another person i know 10 years i mean 10 years late so this is the point at which it's so not remunerative to be writing unless you got a three million dollar advance which you probably didn't get the people who get those probably get their books ghostwritten anyway so that person's really working hard and professional and everything like that that's crazy that's amazing. I think that is surprising to people to know that if you write a book proposal and you sell the book, that sometimes it changes and that's okay. Yeah. So the science, the thing I sort of forgot to say was 
what happens is the science tells me what the book is. And as I'm going along, I'll discover something um, and I'll realize, oh, there needs to be another chapter there or this is wrong. You know, this thing that we've always thought or this thing I thought the chapter would be, I look at the research and I think this doesn't hold up. Um, and so that's that's an important thing, to be flexible like that, to let the science tell you. Or, you know, if you're writing a novel, um, you know, maybe it's so- somewhat research-based, you'll find something out and it will really change your story in some way. And just to be open to that without it driving you too far afield. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really important. And to to understand that, like, if you keep going forward and you keep writing a little bit more and it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to reach out. Um, I'm wanting to touch back because you said you had something about editor and agent and I'm. it oh, sounds it just, like that I was what it. you shared. Okay. Yeah, I said it. And it's really, the other thing too is that you have to be willing to trash things that are stupid, even though you spent really just an outrageous time writing them. You know, I wrote something in the book that I just um, am, am working on now where it was just this like self-indulgent crap. And I didn't see it until my agent sent me, you know, notes back. And I just, she she said it more kindly than that. But I realized like looking at it, I'm like, oh my God, this is self-indulgent crap with a little distance from it. And that's an important thing. So it's really important to write every day if you can, or at least, you know, at least for a little bit of time on something, because it gives you that distance where you can look at it the next day and have some vision where, you know, so Wednesday is the day after my deadline for my column, and I'll start new questions then, writing them, looking up the science, and I'll just, as I said, make a mess. And then Thursday, it's a little clearer. And then you have time to fix things, because this thing of like writing at the last minute, uh, yeah, no, you're, you're not going to be a genius. It's, it's unlikely you're going to write well. If you wait to the last minute, you have no time to change things, no distance. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really important. I'm really curious about, I think this is something that will be inspiring to people, and it definitely pricked my ears up, is that your background is completely autodidactic in science. And I think that's really inspiring that you can end up writing five books as a result of that background. We always think of people as having like a whole lot, you know, laundry list of degrees in order to write books about something that they're passionate about. Yeah, Can you, you say know, more about that. Sure. Process? I mean, there is credentialism mainly from journalists, which is funny. Um, and I'm not a journalist. I'm not a science journalist. I don't just write about what somebody did. I translate research and then I create something new out of it, which is practical advice. And also from doing this for so many years, I've been doing it almost 20 years. Um, I'm really practical. You see in advice columns a lot of times this stuff that you think like, no one would ever do this. This is ridiculous. And so um, I think about the ways you're going to fail at the advice, you know, that I give, you know, you're not supposed to talk to your ex-boyfriend, you know, but you're going to see him in the middle of town. So how do you respond to that? Those real life things. So the way I started, it was, it's my accidental career. Um, I, um, two women and I, um, gave free advice on a Soho street corner. We had a signed free advice from panel of experts presented by the advice ladies. And we just set up with, um, three chairs and a magazine rack for a table on West Broadway and Broom, thinking that people would just walk past us and laugh. Cause we, we always did these sort of like these pranks just to make people laugh in New York. And it was New York. The sign said free. They lined up around the block. Wow. 
And so what happened was people started asking us um, serious questions sometimes. Sometimes it was just the stuff on our sign, like wigs and beards and, you know, funny stuff like that. But um, they would ask us about their breakup or something like that. And I thought, oh, my God, holy shit, I don't know anything. I didn't even take psychology in college. I'd taken it in high school. So I started reading through all of psychology. And so I've always been a bookworm. I had no friends as a child. All I did was read. And no friends until I was 15. I had a sad childhood, but I transformed. And that's what this book is about. Exactly. Um, and so when you don't read in school, you are not, um, you know, it isn't like Freud is God. I just thought, holy shit, this guy just made stuff up. It, this is horrible. And I discovered Albert Ellis, who's one of the co-founders of what we consider cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's very rationally based therapy. And I was very attracted to that. And I just found a lot of the other stuff to be just this sort of mumbo jumbo. I mean, there were some useful things, but um, that was the beginning of my getting a scientific education. And then I, I started going to academic conferences and reading their journals. And this was before the days of PDFs. I used to go um, back after, when I moved from New York to LA, I'd go to UCLA. I'd get a parking ticket every time. It was horrible. Then you started to be able to get PDFs. So the studies from professors it was great. Now, you know, I go to these conferences. I'm the president of an organization of academics. And um, I've spent a long time looking at statistics. I have a book, a great starter book for statistics, Biostatistics, The Bare Essentials, which a researcher recommended when I was just like lost. And um, and um, it has uh, dirty footnotes. And then I read all these <laughs> statisticians and I'm informally coached by a, a big epidemiologist and statistician. So that's really important because you need to be able to have a skeptical look at, at research and think and know this stuff like, okay, sample size. Oh, this is too small. You know, maybe the effect is just due to chance with this small of a sample size, this many people participating in the study. And you need to know um, about things like publication bias, which is where they just, the studies that don't show the results they want, they just shove them in a file drawer. And it's also called the file drawer bias. So you learn about these things and it helps you have, be able to vet the research. So that's, that's a, sort of the process. And I, I describe reading, you know, I didn't know enough about neuroscience. So I read this cognitive neuroscience textbook, which helped me when I was reading studies to understand what they were talking about. And so... That's the thing, you know, school, people, people look at school, you must, oh, you must get a degree. And again, I am, um, I don't really get the credit for the scholarship that I do that I think I deserve. If you look at my books, you know, it, you can look at the blurbs. There are a bunch of blurbs on Amazon, all these professors saying, oh, this is fantastic science and everything. So there are people I respect, respect my work, but, um, because of the fuck in the book title, I wanted to actually put a science help book on the cover, but there's some, like somebody said, like, there's a meta statement. It doesn't, like, the, I don't know what, the, I, I don't understand that publishing stuff. Um, I think that they don't want you to understand it because they want you to just shut up and be a good little author. And I'm a bad author. I'm a naughty author who <laughs> has, has strong opinions. Um, but my publisher's great. So I shouldn't, it's not, it's not like they hate me or anything. Um, but those kind of things, you know, they're, they're trade-offs. Do you put fuck in the book title? You know, because there are certain, okay, Costco's not going to carry it. Certain radio stations can't have you on, but fuck makes books sell. And I test everything <laughs> I do. So I came out of advertising. I worked in advertising, not as a, my life career, but right out of college, I worked at Ogilvy and Mather Advertising, big ad agency, the start of branding. And so and they tested things before really anybody did. And so I test all my book titles on people. Oh, and so for this book, Unfuckology, my editor has a great sense of humor. And I both like this. I wanted to have a high concept cover. Um, 
and um, to have, I had saw this photo of this guy, and we actually got the rights. He was um, a man with his head stuck up his ass. <laughs> so I thought it would be so funny, you know, like to unfuck yourself. And um, I tested this. I took this out on Abbott Kinney Boulevard in Venice, where I live, um, which is now this like horrible tourist street. Um, and um, every, so everybody's from everywhere. And um, I tested it, and every woman... Every woman was horrified by it. Horrified. Oh, no. You know, and so I have a sort of sixth sense of humor. And so I thought it was great. But I realized, you know, from that, that this cannot be the cover, you know, and it just, it cannot be on the cover, even though I think it's funny. So that's an important thing to do. Um, and, and also, by the way, if you think your cover is awful, you know, because publishers, you know, we're all like, we all come up with bad ideas. You know, somebody came up with this and they, they thought like, oh, this is a great idea. You can complain and say, you know, I don't think this works. You have to have rational ideas for it. And also, it's good to actually listen to people. Listen, because your editor, you know, we're, we're, all, um, we're all prone to when someone says, oh, well, we should do this to, to be all not invented here. But I really try to remember that we have that propensity to reject ideas that are not our own and to really consider, is this a good idea? You know, and so you can fight and say, this is not, um, this cover doesn't really represent my book and ask them for a new cover. And um, that that's something that I think too few authors know. Yes, I think that is important to know. Because I think that, I mean, the author feels responsible for the books, you know, the words inside the book, but then feels like, oh, the publisher has to handle all the rest of it. Well, and also you can give them ideas, like talk about that and see if you can be involved in the cover somewhat, you know, um, and, then, and then in like writing jacket copy and stuff like that, because... Often, like with a science book especially, um, you're probably, as the author, you're going to be able to describe some of it better than others can. But Jack, a copy writing that, oh, my God, that's some of the hardest stuff ever, you know, because it has to be very concise and understandable and everything. And there's an art to that. Uh, my editor's very good at it, you know, and, and some people just aren't. Yeah, it's a it's a whole separate animal. Yeah. Well, I could keep talking to you all day, actually. Yeah, ditto. About it's all fun. Of this? I know, it's so I love fun. It. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're writing another book because we'll have to have you back on to talk oh, about great. that one. That's a medical expose that has yes. to do with the story and everything. Um, you know, it's it's very, very interesting. So I, that's, um, well, we'll um, I'd love to come back and talk about that one. So in the meantime, tell everybody where they can find you online. We'll have links in our show notes, of oh, course. Great. But for everybody listening, tell us the name of your column. Tell them all of that. Okay. Well, follow me on Twitter. It's Amy Elkon, really weird, ethnically generic, um, A-M-Y-A-L-K-O-N. Um, I don't know. We were probably like Elkanovsky or something like that. And Ellis Island, they went like, oh, fuck, that's <laughs> long. Um, okay. And my column is called The Science Advice Goddess, but some papers did not change the name. So some papers call it The Advice Goddess. Please read me in a paper, in a newspaper, because that keeps the papers in business and that keeps them paying me and then I won't die of starvation. Um, you can, um, let's see what else, um, bring me in to speak for an organization. I'll talk on the process of living with confidence or on um, why we should all be kind to strangers and that make our, that will make our, um, it makes, it's in our self-interest and others' interest. And then you can buy my book, independent bookstores. I love them. Um, you can buy it online, Barnes and Noble, Amazon. And here's the thing, please, please, please review authors' books. If you read someone's book and you don't hate it, 
you know, go on, like give them a nice review and it, they can be short. What matters actually for authors is number more than how much you write because somebody's going to write that long review where they're like, you know, there was a comma. I really wasn't pleased oh, with in chapter three. Yeah. No, but that's fine, you know, and that's part of the game. If they're not doing those hate reviews, um, by the way, Goodreads, it's a hate site. Um, I hate it. It's a hate site with books. Um, if you see, like, some of the reviews, it's horrible, but you could have put nice reviews up there of an author's book if you like it. But, um, yeah, you see people, it, the horrible thing that people do is they use the review system to go after somebody to try to hurt <sighs> their livelihood, and that's terrible. So that's why it's especially important that people who honestly read books review books. And oh, by the way, I am a terrible book reviewer. I, I'm just really bad at writing reviews, but I do them anyway. And in fact, I in, reviewed somebody's um, science book um, recently where I just wrote the review. I'm a terrible reviewer, but <laughs> that I really like this book. So that's why I was motivated to review it anyway. And so that helps. That really helps. Excellent. So do that. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talking about the book and the process of writing. I know this is a, a different approach than we've been able to talk about before, and I think it's going to be really inspiring We're good. to everybody. Oh, I hope it was. Yeah. And just um, the thing I want to say is, you know, just keep writing that you get better and better. I saw this in, um, oh, my favorite novelist, Paul Beatty. Um, I read his book, um, The Sellout, which won the Booker Man Prize. It's just the most fantastic satire race on race, and it's in, set in L.A., and he's so funny, and there's all these, this science in it, psycho psychological references. It's so fantastic. So I just couldn't get enough of him, but so I kept reading back and back and back. And you see, as, as you go back in his books, that they like each one sucks a little more. And when I say sucks, I love him as a writer, but you see how he grew, and that's the thing. You publish a book and you think it's really good and then you'll publish another one you learn and they get better and better and you have to be committed to this thing of keep going, keep writing and then you get better that way. And it's just what the process is. None of us are geniuses. Oh, and this is something um, Naomi Barton, who I follow on Twitter, said, and I'm so with her on this. I hate these young writer prizes. How yeah. shitty. Oh, oh, you wrote a novel at 22. What about if you like were a mom and had some struggles and struggled with addiction and then you wrote your first book at 48? Well, like, how cool. I don't care that you wrote at 22. I care that it's good. We should reward good first novelists, not first novelists who are 22. And I have to say, LA Times Festival of Books, which is great. It's the best book festival, I think, in the country. It's huge. They have their book prizes and they do that. It's first novel, not like you wrote it when you were like 12 and a <laughs> half and yay you. So yay, LA Times yes, Festival definitely of Books. big yay on that. <laughs> okay, now shut up. Thank you so much for having I ramble. I'll go on like, I'll, I'll steal this mic and we'll just never get off. Know, we'll be, be on at midnight. It's going to be a marathon. Yeah, right. Anyway, <laughs> thanks a bunch. Thank this you. is great. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing. <laughs>